Hey, I'm Jan. And I'm Jared. And we're both librarians at Manhattan Public Library. Welcome to the second season of the Read MHK podcast. Read MHK is a community-wide reading program aimed at building connections through books and sharing experiences with each other. Each month, we speak with a local community member, talk about books based on the theme, and offer reading suggestions. One of our inspirations for the Read MHK program is the K-State First Book Program, which helps students transition from high school to college by having every first-year student read the same book. This common read, as well as associated activities and events, creates a shared experience amongst the students, which can be a better conversation starter than the weather, and helps create a stronger community on campus. Read MHK also strives to make those connections within the larger community of Manhattan. This year's K-State first book is Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why by Amanda Ripley. This book reviews not only disasters, both natural and man-made throughout history, but also uses those disasters for context to examine how and why people survive and what we can do to increase our odds of survival when we find ourselves in the midst of a disaster. Our guest today is Annie Spence, who began her iron journey over a decade ago. Filled with a deep love for science, science fiction, and comic art, she became fascinated with drawing the body, in particular the anatomy and musculature of the human system. At the young age of 12, she bought a copy of Strength Training Anatomy by Frédéric Delavier. Inspired by the art within, she joined a local gym and found her home amongst the weight racks, chalk, and old 80s lifting gear. Fascinated and filled with curiosity, she spent hours in that basement training and tearing through every book and resource on training she could get her hands on. Since that time, Annie has put in thousands of hours with the iron and learned just how life-giving the pursuit of strength is. At 20 years old, Annie survived a traumatic crush injury, rendering her with six open pelvic fractures, organ damage, and extensive nerve injury. Over 24 hours of surgery and six months of hospitalization in New Zealand left her with 29 screws and three plates in her pelvis and spine. Three years later, Annie graduated in kinesiology, founded her first brick-and-mortar location, and that fall fell sick with a MRSA infection in her hardware, which destroyed her left hip joint. After a year and a half of bone-on-bone coaching and training, she had a complete left hip replacement, leaving her with an even greater gratitude for movement, health, and strength, as well as an intimate understanding of what it truly means to be strong, to fight for one's life, and to reclaim one's body. Now, Coach Spence offers client-centered coaching in person and online, drawing on years of experience, her degree in the field, and her broad-reaching professional certifications. When she's not coaching, training, or putting her nose in a book, she likes to... I like to spend a great deal of time reading at the coffee shop downtown, as well as a great deal of time down on 4th Street at the Combative Sports Center training MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Very cool. That's awesome. And the first book she remembers reading as a child is... Mickey in the Midnight Kitchen by Marie Sendak, I think. That's is probably in the yeah in, in the, the midnight, midnight kitchen, kitchen by Marie Sendak. by Marie Sendak yes mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I think that's about as far reaching as I can remember it took that took me some time to think about and that's such a weird book it's so weird <laughs> it's that's very probably why I remember <laughs> it's very Marie Sendak mm-hmm. and it's I remember there's one page that it's just like oh look at that but 
It's very interesting. I don't, I don't know if I remember a great deal about it. I think I just remember the title, but now okay. I'm going to have to investigate go, as an, as an adult. Again. Maybe it's a strange, maybe that's a strange answer to give. <laughs> Probably also like uh, Roald Dahl anything, like mm. the Vicar mm-hmm. of Nibbleswick is like a pretty good one. So. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. nice. <laughs> Do you remember who or what got you into reading? Definitely. My mom got me into reading. I'm from Manhattan, and so I grew up down on Leavenworth Street, so very close to the Manhattan Public Library. So I spent a great deal of my childhood here, and before I could read, my mom read to me a really copious amount. So I think that, yeah, I was very lucky to be read to at an early age, and I think that probably got me into reading pretty soon, and of course being being close to the library here. What book has left the biggest impact on you? Probably A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. I read that in probably third or fourth grade, and I know it's like oriented as like a young adult fiction book, but even as an adult, it's like pretty regular that something happens where I'm like, oh yeah, of course, you know, like a Kamazots or something. So I think, yeah, definitely Madeline Lingle, and then of course anything by her in that whole trilogy, but A Wrinkle in Time was really, I think, perspective changing for me as as a kid. It definitely has that ability, and and I love that more people are, are introduced to it throughout the years, that it hasn't just, like, faded away, that yeah. it still captures the same fantasy and love and heart that it did when it was written. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, it's definitely stayed relevant. And I think, uh, what, did it come out in, like, 1942 or 52? It's, it's been around for a long time, and somehow mm-hmm. I think it's still pretty relevant. Yeah. There's a part in it where I don't remember if it's Mrs. Who or Mrs. Witch or Mrs. What's It says, like, a book is also a star. And I think that still feels relevant now. Absolutely. I love it. Okay. We always have to ask some kind of question to see what kind of a person you are. So (laughs) So you're going to find me out. (laughs) Do you dog your pages or write in your books? Yep, correct. Yeah, okay, both of, both of those <laughs> both things. Of those. Yeah, I'm a serial book ruiner. <laughs> if you get it after me, God, it's going to be illegible probably. But yeah, no, no, no. Lots of, lots of notes. I think it depends. It's all context dependent. But for sure, I'm a dog ear. I'm a dog ear person. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. We should do a little tally by the end of the year and see what we get. Not with library books. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Never, no. never with library books, but yeah. I'll do my, my own. <laughs> Of course. Right. <laughs> we'll just check your stuff when you turn yeah, it back in. happens on it. Never. <laughs> yeah. Right. Describe your ideal reading location or setting. Ooh. My wife and I have dogs at home, and so I think anybody that knows us is like, there are children in probably a strange way. And I think my ideal reading location is just like at home with some coffee, like on the couch with the dogs, curled up. Got all the dogs. I got the book. I think I'm good. That's nice. I try to do that with my dog, and he's a big old giant ginormous thing, and he yeah. sits like on me, on and top his of tail you. is like like whacking, whacking you. Face. So we have a we have a little we have a little hairless dog. He's a Sholo. He's a Mexican hairless, like the little dog in Coco, and he gets oh, cold, so he's a serial cuddler. And then we have a golden doodle who gets hot, so mm-hmm. it's like warm dog, cold dog, and then our lab who just like does her own. She's like over here doing her own thing. And I'm sure the golden doodle yeah. is just like, I love you. Please let me be around you. All, all the, the time. All the time, yeah. Yes. So it's just both of them on me, the book. That's it. Of course. <laughs> Great place. What role do books, stories, libraries play in bringing a community together or even creating a community? I think that probably to answer that in two parts, right? Stories, and maybe this will kind of circle back to the, the mirrors and sliding doors conversation, but stories offer us an opportunity to have a 
quote unquote lived experience that we haven't had in the real world, like via our imagination. And I think that that builds a broader sense of empathy and connection with those around us. And so I think that stories in a lot of ways are mostly an opportunity to understand the world and other people differently, which then helps us connect with others and to step into their shoes. And then outside of that, a library as a brick and mortar facility, you know, as, as a community facility, and as somebody who grew up going to the public library my whole life, I think that it's a place where you meet people. And a lot of the times, even if it's not maybe like these super intimate relationships that you're forming, I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, I've seen the same faces at the library for several years. And, you know, you have these little conversations. And I think that that sense of feeling knit into a community, even if it's in a quiet way, is really important and integral to our well-being and, and sense of connection. And then, of course, you know, it's a it's a meeting space and a place for events and, and things like this. So mm -hmm. I 100% agree. <laughs> and I think that, you know, as, as libraries change in the next few years, and, and it has in the past, there will be more community centers where, you know, more gathering happens. I'm the teen librarian here. And yeah. a lot of times after school, the kids just come to hang out with each other. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they study and just sit next to each other, but mm -hmm. other times they're playing games or doing the Oculus or whatever. But this is the place to be if you didn't know that. So... <laughs> I think it's also a place where, you know, a lot of people, and I think we saw this during the pandemic, people were stuck at home and really isolated and didn't maybe have the opportunity to connect with other people or even be peripherally like in the same physical space. And I think that as the advent of the internet, in some ways, probably information is more like we're drowning in information. And so I think that Having a physical location where, yes, you can seek out information at a library, but more important, that community aspect and physically being present with other people probably is going to be ushered in as being more and more relevant as time goes on. I think that's definitely true. There's some people that we see on a regular basis, mm -hmm. some patrons who we maybe feel that this is their only human contact. Right. You know, they need we're, the, to go. Yeah. we're the people that they see every day. And, you know, eventually it's like, mm -hmm. hey, how's it going? You know, you start conversations. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's very important. Absolutely. I see the same thing with our homebound program when we deliver mm. books to people who mm -hmm. can't come into the library. Yeah. A lot of that is just that social interaction. Yep. yep. Harvard did a longevity study where they were saying, like, what are the things that make people live a, a long, happy life? And, of course, getting your flu shot, not smoking and <laughs> not drinking too much, you know, all the, the normal, like, health recommendations. But then actually that really outside of all of these other health behaviors, the most important thing was human connection was, you know, that loneliness is murderous. And I think the library is a big barricade against that for people, probably. I definitely think you're right. Yeah. And we saw it during the pandemic and coming back out of that. We are a community center. It's not just a building with books. Exactly. Yeah. And it's fun to see people who haven't been in for a while and they're like, this is my first time back. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been remodeled a lot. Yes, it's yeah. definitely changed. Can you tell us a favorite memory you have related to books and or libraries? Oh, boy. Probably a favorite memory related to the library itself was just walking here very specifically. And then as I got older, biking here as a townie and like being so stoked. Went through a, it was a big, big bug kid. So went through a whole field guide, like informational kind of nerdy book period. And so I think there was a real window of walking down here, getting all the stuff on like bugs that I could find and taking it home or reading it outside. And I think that that probably would be, there's a real information collecting time in my life. <laughs> probably coming here for that and being excited every time was, was pretty good. That's awesome. We love to hear that. Yeah. If you are still a bug person, we have oversized books that have huge drawings of bugs in them. Oh. 
I tried it with my son. I think he was a little too young, but it did catch his attention. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll be old enough stuff. for the, the <laughs> big <laughs> butt yeah. You can definitely carry them now. You're so, right. you know. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Or you can hefty. use them in your weightlifting. That's, so, that's the one. <laughs> okay. This was mentioned a bit in your bio, but can you tell us how you got into strength training? Yeah, I suppose this kind of circles back to books. I really liked graphic novels and comics as a child. And so really early on, wanted to draw this kind of like realistic, illustrious graphic novel illustration style. And as a way of doing that, you know, I needed referential material. And so lots of books on anatomy and physiology and just images of athletes and things like that for reference for this graphic novel illustration that I was interested in doing. And then Around 12 years old, I got a copy of a book, Strength Training Anatomy by Frederick Delabier, and he's a French illustrator that does these really detailed graphite illustrations of anatomy in particular in like a training context. And so first, this was kind of like, okay, here's this, this reference material for drawing. And then I just kind of got to thinking like, hey, this is, this is pretty cool. And at the time, there was a gym in Aggieville called Pro Fitness, and there'd been a lot of powerlifters, bodybuilders that trained down there. And my dad had had a membership. And so I just, I was about 12 and I was like, hey, I think that this maybe looks like a cool thing to do in addition to a cool thing to draw. And so started just reading and going down and doing the stuff that I read in the book, probably a little haphazardly. And then <laughs> I did online school through MHS for middle school and high school. So I had a lot of, other than getting the work that you had to have done, done, you know, you can kind of distribute it throughout the day. So I had a lot of time in the middle of the day to, to read about training and to physically go to the gym and train and just really fell in love with it. It became a second home. And so that started it all. And um, we're still here doing it like 15 years later. I remember Pro Fitness down in the basement. Iconic. Yeah. yeah. And it was yeah. like still all the super corny Nautilus equipment with the teal and purple. Mm-hmm. Color. I like remember it was the very teal like and 1980s. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, there's the documentary Pumping Iron with Arnold, and then there was like a second, like an 80s. Really interesting from like a gender studies <laughs> standpoint. But <laughs> sure. uh, there's a second Pumping Iron that was like incredibly 80s. And it was like Pro Fitness was embedded in that time, or it felt to me like it was. So yeah. Little... I think the 80s at that point and that whole building were very, very, yeah, very probably 80s. true to the strip mall. Yeah. Yeah. So I think crimpers and. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the nerdy aspect of you reading about it in a book and then trying to do it in real life. Yes. You know, I didn't play sports as a kid. It was not, you know, I still joke that, like, I'm not (laughs) super athletic in the traditional sense. So I think that physical culture, if you will, like on a more broad standpoint, like in, in sport and strength training, that was really my introduction to it was through the world of reading rather than through the world of participating in school sports or anything more conventional. And I think that, I don't know, that probably lends a perspective or an interest that was a little different than maybe, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Because my oldest daughter did soccer mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff for years and years and years and years and years. <laughs> it was a long time. Yeah. And uh, it, you know, it definitely shaped how she went off in her trajectory. Mm-hmm. So what role did your training play in not only surviving your injury, but also recovering from it? In a lot of ways, really the front and center role. With my accident, a tree fell on me, shattered my pelvis up really bad. And essentially, the pelvic fractures were really incredibly severe. And when I got to the primary hospital, so I had this kind of initial emergency surgery, my bladder had exploded and my intestines were punctured and things like that. And so at the, the first hospital, they had to repair all of that. And then they were like, your, your pelvis is really shattered. They drilled a hole through my femur and, and put traction in it, you know, so that they could set the bone and, and send me to the Manicow Clinic, which is 
kind of a major hospital in Auckland and where they do most of their primary orthopedic surgery. And at that hospital, they thought that the pelvic repair would be a four-hour surgery, and it turned into 13 and a half because there were more breaks than they realized, as well as a, a big skin injury, which I won't get into. But after I woke up from that surgery and, you know, you have these meetings with the surgeons and they come in and give you the information on what's going on, they were like, well, we've never seen anyone this broken apart with the exception of a fellow in the 80s who'd had an oil drum fall on him off of a truck. And they said, you know, we put in 29 screws and three plates. In order to put that much hardware into bone, you have to have the bone stock initially. And one of the adaptations to strength training is an increase in density and diameter of bone tissue. And so they were basically like, you wouldn't have had the material for us to repair you, right, if you hadn't been strength training for, you know, eight years at that point. So I think that in terms of surviving the accident and having the baseline, I guess, physical quality to survive it and to be repaired from it, weightlifting played a pretty front and center role. The other thing was... My right hip joint broke, but the capsule itself was okay. The kind of soft tissue around it was safe. And that's another adaptation to strength training is that soft tissue becomes thicker and more resilient and more elastic. And so, yeah, there's no separable way to look at the two. It was very much like you would have died if you hadn't been training, but also you still might die. We don't know. (laughs) Uh, was kind of the consensus at the time. And then, of course, since then, it's been okay. That's really interesting. And and I like the physiological part of that, how your bones were so different because of your strength training and I'm getting a tad older, you know, they say focus on strength training for osteoporosis. It's one of the number one ways Mm -hmm. to combat, yeah, bone, bone loss over time. You know, I think also all of the other adaptations that come with that, like in combating bone loss, it's, you know, not just that, it's like your capillary system, like every system of the body adapts. And what's really cool about that to me is that nobody's special in that, right? It's like we all have the ability to adapt to training. And so it's not what you're born with. It's like what you're doing, right? That, mm-hmm. that impacts that. So. Mm-hmm. That's a good PSA for all of us to be doing. Yes. Training propaganda. Well, we are librarians. We do carry a lot of books you around. Do. Yeah. <laughs> the weight of the knowledge of the world. <laughs> Best line ever. (laughs) I'm going to use that all the time. Please do. Please. (laughs) Were there any books you found particularly useful during your recovery, whether specific to your situation or ones that were just a good distraction or an escape? Yeah. Well, I think to be very on the nose, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl was a book that I'd read prior to my accident. It was just like a book that I'd read out of interest and then a book that I reread during that time. And I think that just in terms of, and in terms of relevance to the K-State First book this year, a lot of the question is like, how and why do people survive tragic things? And Viktor Frankl, if somebody's not familiar with Man's Search for Meaning, he was a Holocaust survivor that spent a great deal of time in a prison camp. And he was also a, a therapist. And so he talks a lot about his observations on the experience of surviving this tragic thing and the way in which people respond. And one of his things that he says in the book is, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. And that's a book that I would just recommend to you know anyone. It's really rich on thought material in terms of dealing with, with human suffering. And you know he lived, lived through this really tragic thing. So that was inspiring to me because it was like, oh, man, I'm just like in a hospital bed. Like it's like I'm getting like fed, you know, I'm okay, right? Like stuff's not, stuff's not that bad. So that book was really inspiring at the time and really resilience building. And then I'll be honest, like, you know, I think that reading long 
form material at the time was pretty difficult. You're on a lot of a lot of pain medication. You're pretty <laughs> sleepy when you're recovering, and so again, I think going back to like graphic novels and things mm-hmm. like that was something that I, I circled back to. Yeah, those would definitely be great for uh, for that kind of the thing. visual. The yeah, visual. The visual, got the visual stimulus mm-hmm. too, which keeps your brain active, which helps everything else yeah. stay active. So, yay, graphic novels! Yes, yeah, <laughs> big time. I had a minor thing at a doctor when I was trying to read a book to distract myself. Yeah. And I just read the same page over and over because I get to the end and forget. And you're like, oh, everything. yeah, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. yeah so I had to, had to keep it pretty, pretty, pretty simple. <laughs> but still, yeah, still made it through Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Okay. Gonna check that one out. Did your accident change the trajectory of your life or have you always wanted to be a coach? Probably yes to both of those in some way. Training immediately became a kind of a special interest, basically, as as soon as I started doing it. And it was something that, you know, as you move through school and as you get older, and I think especially being from Manhattan in a college town where there is, and I don't have anything to compare this to, but maybe more pressure on what are you going to do? What are you going to study? What are you going to pursue for a career? Because it's so forefront. I think that I was nervous at the time. It's hard to be what you can't see. And so I think that not having a great deal of information of like, well, what does it really look like to pursue strength training and fitness in the way that I believe in it as a career, as an option, was something that I felt nervous and kind of tentative about. And I think in terms of the cause of my accident in the first place, that traveling was part of that searching for, well, what, you know, I really like this thing, but what am I going to do? And is that a good idea? And like, I've never been out of Kansas, so I'm going to go to this other country. Uh, (laughs) So I think that, yes, it was something that I really wanted to do, but maybe didn't have like a distinct vision or like a pathway carved for that of how do I really do this other than, you know, get a kinesis degree at K-State kind of thing. So then I think when I, when I came back and it being so vindicating of like, oh, wow, if I hadn't been doing this thing, I wouldn't be here. And even in the presence of that, I wouldn't be able to have recovered and had the same quality of life without training. So that really imbued the idea of sharing that thing with other people with a really deep sense of meaning. And so it was like, well, I can't imagine not not doing this. And so then at that time, I basically left for New Zealand January 2016. I got there and then got back right before the semester at K-State started. And so I enrolled in the Kines program and went through. And that first semester met my now wife. And she was like, well, why don't you get certified to train people? And so I you know, went to the K-State Rec and talked to them about training and got certified and started working as a trainer in tandem with going to school. And they've got a really wonderful program at K-State for Kines students and really for anybody interested in personal training. And so the two just blurred together. And then again, as you're graduating, there's these other options that are proposed to you of like, well, you could use this to go to nursing school or to go to physical therapy school or to do these other things. And it was like, no, I really believe in in weightlifting and I really just want to coach this thing in the way that I believe in it. And so that kind of spurned the creation of Unbreakable Strength Co. as a concept. And then I started operating under that name when I graduated. How long after your accident did you get your degree? Three years, I suppose. Three years, so I took, okay. Yeah, I graduated uh, high school in, in 2013 and then took three years off. So then okay. enrolled fall semester 2016, graduated 2019. And so just kind of went full-time, you know, summer intercession, et cetera, and, and trained at the same time. And then graduated 2019 and started Unbreakable Strength Co. in person okay. at that juncture. Awesome. Yeah. I'm sure you have a much better connection with mm. people after your accident to kind of say, this is really important, saying that this kind of thing is going to help you. Mm -hmm. It's not just some person saying, oh, yeah, you you need to. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for saying that. A big thing for me is so much of the fitness industry markets itself predicated on this concept that people are pursuing exercise to look a particular way or to be a particular weight or size. And we've entrapped body image into our association with fitness behaviors in a way that has been really poisonous for a lot of people's well-being. Yes. And so fitness culture, and then in particular with the advent of Instagram and social media, where, you know, you can at any moment see somebody who's like, jacked and tan and drugged up and uh, you know it's like oh yeah if I wanted to lift weights that's that's what I'd look like you know and so the fitness industry has done people at large a, a really broad disservice in predicating something that really is just good for your well-being on something aesthetic or on something really punitive right and so for me it was really important to not market based on that and that's mm-hmm. not really my approach to fitness of course you know I think people have different goals and then you meet their needs with those goals but Broadly to me, it was just like, hey, this thing has kept me alive and has given me a a quality of life that, you know, I think knowing other people that have had injury or accident, it's like, I think we all know somebody who is like, oh, yeah, I can't run after my kid on the playground because I like (laughs) busted my knee in high school football. And it's sad to me that people are haunted by injuries for the long term. And so, you know, whether that's through strength training or yoga or whatever physical movement modality they find that helps them live a higher quality of life. I think that is kind of what I try to connect with people on rather than connecting with them on this kind of uh, maybe more superficial basis. And the other thing is, you know, as a trainer, you're asking adult people to do things that are hard and uncomfortable and sometimes painful. And so part of that is like, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done myself. And I Mm -hmm. see that this is hard, but I also see that you can do it And so I think, you know, when there's that kind of connecting over a a lived experience, maybe in that way, too, is is something that is important to me. I agree. Definitely. That does resonate because I dislocated knees when I was younger. So I still have that haunting from a younger injury. Yeah. Where I don't want to run after my son because if I have to move too fast, I'm going to fall again. Right. Feels like it's going to hurt. And so I think, you know, we all have maybe not all of us, some lucky people don't, but <laughs> I think a lot of us have been hurt at some point in time or another, or we've also, I think all had an, an interaction with exercise that's been unpleasant. Like I was mm-hmm. definitely like a walker on the presidential fitness test as a oh. kid, like for sure was not right like, here. Yeah. like the irony here is I was like, I can't do a, I can't do a pull up. Like I'm going to walk. Cause like running is hard. And um, so I think that, you know, we all have some association with exercise and unfortunately a lot of people have a negative association with that and so I think to call people in Mm -hmm. in, into a sphere where it's like hey we're just going to meet you where we're at we're going to find the stuff that you enjoy that also benefits you and and emphasize that and then rather than it being like oh look you lost weight or whatever it's more like hey look you can run after your kid and you haven't thought about your knees one time that's a big win right and that to me is the importance of connecting with people and I think on a maybe adjacent note to that is when you have something like what I had I, I remember in the hospital I'd been out of the ICU, I think, for four days. So I was still going to be in New Zealand for like another six months. And this nurse was like, oh, yeah, well, it could have been so much worse. (laughs) You could be dead. And I was like, that's true, but this is pretty awful. Like, (laughs) It still hurts a lot. It still hurts. Like I've I've got a (laughs) catheter. I'm not going to be able to walk for six months. And everything's painful. And I'm on the other side of the globe. So like... This is displeasant. So I think you learn. (laughs) I think you learn also, like, I think we're so uncomfortable with bearing witness to or being present with other people and things are difficult or or when they're suffering that, you know, maybe I think it also taught me a lot about that. And I think that as a trainer, you know, it's like whether it's working with people that have a history of trauma or that are like currently going through a difficult experience, it's like, hey, there's some like stuff that you 
don't say to people. And it could be worse is one of those things. <laughs> uh, so I think that is definitely yeah, true. I hope, I hope it you know, makes me more accessible there too. I can imagine that it does. <laughs> Just unrelated to that, you hadn't left Kansas and your first trip was New Zealand. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. That's a step. That's a step. One of my friends from here was in the tent with me when the accident happened. And she she's from here. She lives in New Zealand and married a fellow in New Zealand and lives and works there. And so, you know, she's talked about it for a long time. And so I was like, I really want to leave the country. I want to like go somewhere else. And I suppose people backpack across Europe or whatever, but that seemed kind of scary to me, you know? And so it was like, okay, this is great. I can go somewhere. I know a person. If I need a person, I can go do my own thing. I went through their program called WOOF, which is the Worldwide Organization of Organic Farmers. And so, you know, you basically like, you get your plane ticket down there yourself, and then you do either farm labor or some, some form of labor related to organic farming in exchange for, you know, food and housing. And so went down and WOOFed for a farmer couple named Claire and Mike in the Apodaki Bay on the North Island and harvesting garlic in January because that's their summer, right? So Mm -hmm. um, because they're in the Southern Hemisphere. So I think, yeah, New Zealand was, it's geographically very far, but in a lot of ways it was like, I'm a 4-H kid. I'm from Kansas. I can do some farm (laughs) stuff. I'm going to go down there and do some farm stuff. And, uh, And I know someone. And so, you know, leading up to the accident, I met my friend at an event and it was their Burning Man Festival, which is where you camp and also where there are trees. So um, <laughs> that, that, kind of, that kind of led to that. But yeah, my first, first time really, I mean, I've been to, I guess, Latin America, but never to anywhere off the continent, you know. And this was your experience. And what an experience. It sounds, it I've, I've talked to other people who've done something like that. Unforgettable. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Even up before the accident. Even up before the accident was unforgettable. <laughs> yes. I would highly recommend that the part program. Of it. And I would highly recommend New Zealand. Yeah. D- trees aren't, you know, there's no ants, right? Like, it's not the Lord of the Rings. They're not, it the trees tree aren't uprooting end. themselves and just, like, punching people into the ground. Like, it's a beautiful place. And, yeah, everybody should go if they can. That's a good reference. Yeah. <laughs> what is the most rewarding part about your work helping others? Definitely forming relationships with people. I have about 55 hours of in-person clients scheduled every week. And so I do work a good bit of time. And it's like every one of those time slots is filled with with spending time with people. And so, you know, I have folks that I've trained for five years at this point. And I think how we talked about a library as a community space, in a way, this like little gym is a community space. And for me, it's really spending time with people and getting to know them and then watching them improve their quality of life through training. I have one client in particular who is 75 and we started training when they were 70 and they had never lifted prior. And... I compete in powerlifting and they had come to a meet last year and then expressed some interest in that. And so we started training for a powerlifting meet last year. And this year at the Sunflower State Games, he took the state record in bench press and deadlift. And so I think it's really cool. You know, it's not really about the weights that you move or whatever. You know, I think it's not the material act itself so much as it's like watching people do things that they didn't think that they could do or or see themselves as a person that they maybe wouldn't have seen themselves as prior. Something changes a lot for a person when they see themselves as strong and capable when maybe they haven't before. And so that's kind of a long-winded answer. But spending spending time with people and watching them grow through that relationship is really cool. That's what it's about is the relationships. Yeah. And I, I can totally see that you're very into that and yeah, very absolutely. in tune. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
that's why I got into librarianship. Yeah. It's a little less stressful on my exercise other than the books. But. <laughs> that sounds pretty strenuous. <laughs> well, and now your now your uh your bike's battery is pretty yeah. pretty pretty sufficient. You have a bike you have a bike with a battery? I have an I just got an e-bike. Okay. And it's mm-hmm. 70 pounds, so it, it All right. needs a battery. Yeah. I lug that up the stairs, not the bike, just the battery. <laughs> just the battery. Okay. But that's enough. It's a good start. So what are what are we what is our like top end speed? What are we what are we talking here? Tops out if on flat it goes twenty. All right. Which is it keeps me cool on my ride to work mm-hmm. and then I catch up on the sweat when I'm trying to lock it up. Yeah. So that's not very helpful. But <laughs> get it, you there get you there fast. Yeah. That's like the motorized scooters. It does have those a things, throttle. Yeah. Those yeah. things like First time I got on one of those, I was like, oh, oh, get a helmet here. I'm so nervous. Yeah. I don't, I see people like going down the street, like flying down, like people little go tiny very kids quick, on Very them. quickly. Yes. Yeah. It is, it is b- brave. Mm-hmm. Very, very brave. <laughs> I would not I'm do not it. quite that tough. Yeah. I'm very, not very coordinated. So if I got on one of those, it would end badly. Yeah. <laughs> What advice do you have for people on their own road to recovery? I think it's difficult to answer that question without it sounding really trite. But I think that finding something that makes the fact that it's hard every day worth it is probably like the underlying, like if you have an ethos to get better, then I think it's easier to show up every day when it's really difficult. But I think also that just it's really hard and it's okay for it to be really hard. I think that there's probably a lot of pressure on people to put on like a, like a, I'm doing good kind of face for people around them. And it's kind of twofold, which is that you have to have community that will hold space for you to just be like, I'm bummed today and I'm angry and I'm sad. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when we retrospectively read or listen to stories about survivorship, it's like, oh, look at this person. They're just like amazing. And they just like smiled the whole time through. And everything's that's, been so everything's easy been, for them. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's really untrue and that you're not like failing at recovering if you're really angry or really heartbroken or distraught or, you know, kind of like all of these normal human feelings and that those are part of recovery not antithetical to it. You know, this is something that's said oftentimes when people are pursuing sobriety is that like relapse is part of recovery. And I think with physical activity or with recovering from injury or things like that, you have times where you'll be like, I'm doing really good. I'm doing really good. I feel good. And then it'll be like, oh, today was hard and it sucked. And I feel like I backslid. Mm-hmm. I don't feel as good as I did. And so I think that it's like relapse in a different sense. That's part of that process to be really vulnerable with my recovery. It's like my accident happened in 2016. And that was, uh, you know, obviously six years ago at this point, but I've done EMDR therapy for PTSD from the accident. I've been really lucky to have met my partner, my now wife, when I came back, who's been tremendously supportive and to have a supportive community. And so I think it's okay to go to therapy or to take medication if that's what you need to do for your well-being. I think that the mental health component is not as focused on. And bones heal. Mm -hmm. They're tissue. They're like wood. You just drill them together and then let them do their thing and they do it. And so the structural component is actually fairly simplistic in its own way, I think. But then there's a psychiatric health component that I think people feel the need to muster through. And it's like, it's okay to go to therapy or to get on meds or do whatever you need to do for your recovery. So I think that would be probably my input there. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. So many people 
feel like they have to be like, everything's perfect. Everything's great. I'm okay. I'm fine. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You know, when you admit to, hey, you know, this has been a bad day. I have a group of friends and we often check in on each other, say, hey, how's it going? And we're all like, sometimes we're like, oh, it's okay. And like Mm -hmm. last week I was like, you know, it's been rough. Things have been hard. I've been really overwhelmed and I, you know, you're sorry about it. But I think once you open yourself up to that Mm -hmm. and admit to it, it's like, oh, that feels a lot better just even allowing for that. And I think when you name a thing, it's probably easier also to come up against it, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that that for me with my accident, it's like you're put on opiate pain medication. And of course, there's a whole thing with being on opiates for a long time for pain as prescribed and then ceasing your usage. There's medication withdrawal that happens even in the absence of abuse. And that's something that a lot of people deal with when they get physically injured is the there's kind of this like pain medication component and, you know, also just the emotional fallout of processing what's happened to you. And I connected with a friend who was in a not a similar accident, but who had very similar injuries to my own a couple years after I'd recovered from my accident that a mutual friend connected us. And they messaged me pretty early on and they were like, dude, do you just like start crying for no reason in the middle of the day and I was like I did for a long time like for you know just Mm -hmm. like I think Mm -hmm. when you when you live through something where you almost die it's like oh you just get like shook sometimes and then that and then that fades over time but it it takes time Mm -hmm. so and I'm sure the EMDR I've heard that's very very yeah very helpful yep and I think we're Mm -hmm. lucky here in Manhattan to have a lot of really skilled practitioners in EMDR and Mm -hmm. I was already an anxious person prior to to having gotten injured but you know, I started taking anxiety medication and that was tremendously helpful, I think, for my well-being and recovery. And so I think it's there's this physical training component, of course, but I think also it's fine to do what you got to do to feel better, whatever it takes. It's also good to acknowledge life as a whole because we live yeah. in a social media world where it's just the highlights yeah. and people are striving for someone else's life where mm-hmm. they're not seeing behind the scenes where yep. the grass is not always greener. There yep. is both sides of that coin. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for sure, with social media, people oftentimes then feel pressured to only share their highlights. And and Mm -hmm. I think we're maybe moving towards that practice, maybe ebbing more than flowing. But I don't know if that kind of facet of social media, more, more people kind of intentionally being honest. But definitely, I think that, yeah, that highlight reel, it's like you have to avoid... Mm-hmm. falling for the trap that that's oh, totally. like the reflection of what's true and I think especially intersecting with the training world you know it's like so much so much fitness contents on Instagram it's like well that's not really yeah everything s- that's going on for these people you see a 19 year old on there who's telling you their diet program is great <laughs> yeah, look right? how great I look and it's like have you had three kids I looked better than that when I was 19 so I don't want to hear it yeah right I think there's a there's this I don't know like there's this meme page that is for strength coaches that I follow. And it's like a, you know, a joke about how, yeah, there's some like 19 year old personal trainer that's just like, <laughs> I have no responsibilities and like nothing costs me any money because I live at home. And like, all you need to do to feel good is just eat out of Tupperware six times a day and sleep for 10 hours a day and spend four hours in the gym. And then it's, and then it's you too can live like, can live like I do. And they're like telling this to like, like a mom of like a newborn or something, you know, it's like, well, I don't, you know, everybody's got their own. I don't know if that's going to work. Not, yeah, not super tenable. So I think it's important that you make your, yeah, make it, make it realistic, make it accessible. Okay. So now we're going to get 
back to kind of the heart of our podcast. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Radine Sims Bishop made the classic analogy regarding diversity in children's literature about books being windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. Stories as windows expose us to new perspectives, cultures, and people. But it is equally, if not more important, to have mirrors so people are able to see themselves in the stories that they read. How do we encourage more people to write and tell stories from their unique perspective so that people of different abilities and backgrounds can see themselves represented? Mm. I think in terms of encouraging people to write, I don't know exactly the full approach to calling people into to sharing their stories so much as maybe it starts with being and creating environments where people feel encouraged to share their stories and where they're authentically listened to. I mm-hmm. think that probably good storytelling starts with the listener if it comes to embracing and encouraging people to continue to tell those stories. And I think that, you know, like podcasts like this or public places like libraries or gyms or coffee shops, right, where community connects, where people feel listened to, and then somebody's like, hey, you know, you gotta, you gotta share that more, more publicly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe people get coaxed into writing. But I think certainly, you know, representation in all facets is really important and that it's hard to be what you can't see or what you haven't heard of before. And I think that that component of showing people maybe a reality where they can be or where they can be embraced how they are um, and where they feel encouraged and safe to share whatever is true is probably the big first step to encouraging those stories to be out in the open more. While we've been doing this and after you started talking about like you like graphic novels and that's what got you into drawing, I really think your story would be a great graphic novel. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that before. I've never thought about that. That's awesome. I think it would definitely be a great... Practice, practice drawing again. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm sure you have so much time right now. So, oh, you know. Yeah. There's plenty of time. I also like that perspective of acknowledging the listener. Because if someone is trying mm-hmm. to tell their story and people keep shutting them down or aren't willing to listen to them, mm-hmm. then the odds of them pursuing that and sharing it with the world are going to be much smaller. Yeah, Absolutely. Sometimes also having somebody that's already a member of like a broader community call an individual into that community. So there's a professional strongman whose full name I'm not going to remember, but he is the the only openly gay world's strongest man competitor at this point in time. And he wrote a book with another fellow who's also co-authored other children's books, right? And so it's like, this guy's a, he's a, he's a professional strongman. He's an out member of the LGBT community, but he's not he didn't start out as like a like a children's book writer and illustrator. And so mm-hmm. he had people who were allied with him that were already in that world help him write and develop this story that's his story about discovering himself and coming out, but also becoming a professional strongman. And so I think that when there's people who, those people who are already embedded in that world called him in and encouraged him to tell that story and be part of it. And now it's, you know, now it's published, like you see it at, at kids' bookstores. So I think that that also helps, right, when there's a listener and then when there's also people who are willing to align themselves and lift up voices that maybe get heard less. Yes, absolutely. Libraries are a great place for that now. Absolutely. We're able to buy things and promote things that help get them out there. And people, especially, we don't have that restriction of, I can't afford to buy that book. Yeah, exactly. Anyone can Mm -hmm. get a library card. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think even more so now, it's like, if you can't physically go to the library, like you were saying, you have the book delivery service, Mm -hmm. right? And then with the Libby app too, Mm -hmm. right? Like being able to get certain eBooks and then interlibrary loan is also awesome. Yeah. Those are all services that I haven't, I haven't used the book delivery, but the the Libby app and the interlibrary loan are all things that I've used where it's like, oh yeah, I can't buy this 
couple hundred dollars right back, but, <laughs> exactly. but somebody did and, and uh, I, can, I can have access to it. And so I think that's really world opening for people. And I think especially there's a whole layer of socioeconomic intersect with that. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that cuts through so many culturally relevant things. Yeah, libraries are a really critical space for exposure, but also for sharing. We've got a great collection development team who have really worked hard at making sure that we have a fabulously diverse collection Mm -hmm. that has something for everyone. And, you know, we work really hard at that. And we are very lucky to have the resources that we do have in this community because we have such a diverse, wonderful community that has so many different people in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this place would be so different if we did not have all of that diversity. Yeah, so absolutely. we, you know, we want to uh, keep encouraging it and exploring it and wait for your graphic novel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to like keep sending you like little notes, like <laughs> the nudge, the nudge. Well, this has been great. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you so much. This yes. Has been thank really you. I've had so much fun. If you'd like to learn more about Read MHK or sign up for the program, you can go to our website, mhklibrary.org. There you can find book suggestions based on each month's themes, log the books you're reading for the month, and find information on upcoming programs. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at refstaff at mhklibrary.org. Thanks for listening.